This morning's scripture is Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let's pray. Uh, God, you gave us the scriptures. Uh, that we might know who you are and that we might know your love to us in Christ and that we might know that you have filled us with your spirit and that we might know that you've called us to live and how you've called us to live, that you might receive glory. And so we, we ask you today, as we look at the scriptures, that we would hear your word or that you would speak to us, that you would guide us and strengthen us, fill us with courage and conviction to live lives that glorify you for all the days of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What if I told you that your kind is not welcome here? What if we met after the gathering because you were confused about that statement and you came up here to talk to me and you said, what do you mean? And I said, your kind is not welcome here. You would all hear that with your own ears and you would all process that with your own mind and you would all filter that through your own understanding you would filter that through your own experiences now depending on the story of your life thus far some of you might look at me and assume that i say that because you're a man or because you're a woman kind isn't welcome here you hear that you interpret that you internalize that and you feel something Depending on the story of your life thus far, some of you might look at me and assume that I say that because of your ethnic background. And you say this is coming out of the mouth of a white guy, so therefore he must mean that I'm not welcome here. If he's welcome, I must not be. Some of you might hear me say a statement like that. You might look at me, you might assume that it's because you weren't born in Canada. Say, I'm an outsider. Maybe you've been rejected by others on those grounds. Maybe that is part of your story. And therefore you hear a statement like that and it's immediately full of weight and meaning and pain. It comes from earlier in your life, but it's brought into the present moment when you hear a statement like that. 
But here's the hope of the gospel for us. God has never said that to a single person in the course of human history. See, salvation in Christ is radically inclusive in that it is offered to all people. But it is also radically exclusive in that it is only offered through Jesus. And it is only through Jesus that any of us can be saved. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one doorway, one pathway, one entrance point into the family of God. And you say, well, who on this planet owes God their worship, owes God their devotion? Whose life does God have a claim upon? Whose life does God have a right to? Actually, everybody. It doesn't really cohere well with our cultural narrative of individualism and individual autonomy. He has a claim on every single human being ever born. He's the God of all people. And because of the gospel of Jesus and the gospel that Paul had been preaching to the churches of Galatia and because of the gospel that we preach here, salvation is available to anyone who will put their faith in Jesus. But it's available only to those who put their faith in Jesus. That is the inclusively exclusive nature of the kingdom of God. It's inclusive to all, but it is only to those who will trust in the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. There is no other savior. There is no other doorway. There is no other entry point. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and that none come to the father, but by me. And this is actually what's at stake here in Galatians in this text. The controversy that led to this letter being written from Paul the Apostle to the churches of Galatia, the question that they're asking, the controversy that's going on, is who gets into the family of God and how does one get into it? See, when I suggest the notion that some of you might not be welcome here, some of you might be tempted to think, well, he's probably right. My kind isn't welcome here. I didn't grow up in the church. So I'll never fit into this church culture. I'm damaged goods. The reason I know that some of you probably think that is because that's how I felt for the first lengthy period of time after I came to Christ when I was almost 20. I just felt like an outsider. I didn't fit. I desperately wanted to fit. Some of you might be sitting here and you might think to yourselves, well, when he says my kind is not welcome here, then maybe I can't be included in the kingdom of God because I'm a total moral failure. Like like you've knocked out a few of the big no-nos, like on the top ten list. You just think, my sin must be too great for God's grace to touch me. I could never be welcomed and accepted by Jesus. See, if you think that you're not good enough to become a Christian, if you're not good enough to receive entry into God's family, it it, it actually shows that you've lost the plot of what Christianity is. There is no bar for how good you must be to enter into the kingdom of God. So if you're a total moral failure, welcome to the club. Jesus saves us too. 
Your salvation's not based on how good you've been or how well you've lived in the past. It's not based on your gender or your ethnicity or your family situation or your sexual temptations. It's based on your faith in Jesus as the only one who can save you and reconcile you to God and bring you into his family. The gospel of grace literally undermines every excuse you would hold to why you must be excluded from the family of God, why you can't be a part of the family of God, why you can't be a part of Jesus' church. The gospel of grace just dissolves every argument like that. The gospel is not limited by your poverty. The gospel is not limited by your wealth. The gospel is not limited by your past sin or any other thing that you could fill into that blank. And the church of Jesus is not beholden to one ethnic people group. This was quickly becoming an issue in the churches of Galatia, and this is the occasion for this letter being written. They had some controversies around this. And so what I want to walk you through as we look at verses 1 through 9 today, we're actually not going to go to verse 10. Verse 10 says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That verse gets its own sermon next Sunday in excursus number 2 in our series. I want to walk you through this text with these three headings. The inclusivity of the gospel, the unity of the gospel, and the mission of the gospel. The inclusivity of the gospel, the unity of the gospel, and the mission of the gospel. Look at this, verse 1. Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Stop there. Last week, uh, Jake said that Paul didn't really make a personal decision for Jesus. He actually said that God, God made a personal decision for Paul. And he was highlighting the nature of Paul's coming to see that Jesus was the Messiah. And then Paul went around for about three years, and we saw this in the text last week, that he was preaching the gospel all over the place, and that he went to then visit Peter in Jerusalem. He spent a couple weeks there, hung out with Peter in Jerusalem, met James, the Lord's brother. We saw that last Sunday in the text from chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. That was his first trip to Jerusalem. You can actually see that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts is kind of like the, the early church history. and lays out a bit of the story of what happened from Jesus' resurrection and ascension to Paul taking the gospel all the way to Rome. And so it tells some of the story. Acts chapter 9 tells us the story of Paul's first visit to Jerusalem. Verse 1 of our text today that I just read for you says 14 years later he visited Jerusalem again and this time he had his missionary partner Barnabas as well as his young disciple Titus. They came with him. It's his second trip to Jerusalem. You can find this second trip to Jerusalem at the end of Acts chapter 11. There's some important background information that we need to know so that we understand Paul's argument here and the importance of it for us today. Um, we've talked about this over the past few weeks. There was a group of people teaching that Paul had missed it, that he did not have the gospel correct. That he had part of it, and these false teachers would say, yeah, 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 Jesus, you need Jesus, that's good. But there's other things that you need to do. Two weeks ago I said Jesus plus anything equals nothing. They were trying to say Jesus plus several things equaled salvation. And I would say that's incorrect. And that's what Paul is saying here. We know that these false teachers and these false brothers, as they're named here, that they were 
teaching, it was Jesus plus circumcision and Jesus plus keeping aspects of the Old Testament law. So to them, the entry point into the family of God was not Christ and Christ alone. It was Christ plus circumcision. Right? Here's their basic reasoning. If you see Jesus as the Savior and you want to be into the family of God, you want to be welcomed in, there are some things you're going to need to do to get into the family, and then there are some things that you're going to need to do to stay in the family. That's what their argument was, and that is what Paul is refuting here. In Acts chapter 15, we actually see the ministry slogan of the false teachers. This is what it says in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In effect, this is what they were saying. Your kind is not welcome here. And that's what Paul's reacting to. These teachers said in order to be saved, you had to become Jewish. That's why Paul's fired up. Right? We talked about Paul's fired up letter, right? Like this passage, verses 1 to 10, if you could read in the biblical Greek, you see that part of it is one sentence, and it's a run-on sentence, and it's ugly grammatically. It sounds like Paul is so angry as he's dictating this that the sentence is just all jumbled around. That's what's going on here, and that's why he's so fired up about this. Your kind's not welcome here. You can be welcome, but you're going to need to go through some things. You're going to need to forsake your Greekness or your whatever and become Jewish. Here's the thing. Paul was Jewish. Barnabas was Jewish, but Titus. Titus was along for the journey to this meeting, and he was not Jewish. Look at this again, verses 1 to 3 in our text. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them... Though privately, before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running and had not run in vain. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This is the radical inclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul brings Titus along with them, and you need to see this because, in a way, that was actually quite risky. Like, would they, in Jerusalem, in the very epicenter of Jewish cultural pressures, would they receive Titus as a brother, or would they reject him because he was a Gentile and was not circumcised? In a certain way, I think Paul brings Titus along as a test case. Now, I don't know how that would feel if you were Titus, because if things don't go well, you're probably going under the knife. I'm not going to say anything else about that. Paul says even though he was a Greek, they welcomed him. Now that's a big deal. Verse 2 says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, again, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
Now, that sounds kind of strange, right? That sounds like Paul, who seems like the most confident apostolic voice in the entire world, like we've never met a guy with that level of confidence before. That's how he seems in the entire New Testament. That seems like a weird phrase for him to say. Like, look, I I came there to make sure that the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles, that I was not running or had not run in vain. It sounds like he's questioning what's going on in his own ministry. That's not the case. He's not afraid he was wrong. What he received, he received as a revelation from Jesus. He is not concerned that he is wrong in this text. In fact, I don't even think he's afraid that the Jerusalem apostles were wrong because he knows that they received the gospel from Jesus himself. I don't think he even thinks that they might be wrong. What he was afraid of was that the Jerusalem apostles were going to be intimidated by the false teachers who wanted to locate the gospel within the cultural Jewishness, and he was afraid that these Jerusalem apostles were going to cave to the pressure of the false teachers, and that they would deviate from the radical inclusivity of the gospel, and that they would locate it within their own culture. And we're going to see in two weeks when we look at this in in the rest of chapter two, Peter actually falls into this trap at one point. He caves to the pressure that is going on. What Paul was afraid of was that they were They would have one Christianity that was trapped within the Jewish culture and that there would then be one Christianity that was free from any of that slavery and no one would know which one was right. You've got one that appears to necessitate inclusion in Jewish cultural realities and keeping the law. And then you've got one that seems to be free of that. And I think his concern was that he'd been taking the gospel to the then-known world and that he was worried that he was laboring in vain because the apostles in Jerusalem were going to be crushed under the weight and cave under the weight of these opposing voices. Now, Paul was afraid of a divided church that was defined more by cultural identity than the new life we have in Christ. Let me say that again to you because that sticks in 2018 in Vancouver. Paul was afraid of a divided church that was more defined by cultural identity than the new life that we have in Christ. Like I said this two weeks ago, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Again, it is subtraction by addition. You cannot add to the work of Jesus. If you add anything as a requirement of salvation, you get nothing. The inclusivity of the gospel of Jesus means that it is a gospel for all people. And you who sit here from all over the world and us sitting here on the west coast of North America, we are evidence that this is true. But what about the unity of the gospel? Were there two gospels being preached? Look at this, verses 3 through 6. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Again, I told you, he has kind of half sentences, and he just like stops in certain places. He doesn't really finish that sentence. I think he's so exacerbated that the scribe is writing it dead. you ever write something for someone who's angry? This is what it sounds like. I don't know. I don't, I can't, I can't say that for certain, but Paul's pretty clear with his thoughts. This is all jumbled up. Let me, let me read that again. Verse four. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
and from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Okay, the people Paul was writing to here, they think that there is a rift between the Jerusalem apostles and Paul. But Paul's point is that the gospel is radically inclusive and it is not culturally Jewish. And that there is one unified gospel. There is not one gospel for the Jews and one gospel for the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And what he's saying is, I'm not alone in what I preach. Actually, contrary to what you've heard, me and the guys in Jerusalem are entirely on the same page. He's like, Titus was with me in Jerusalem. And even Titus wasn't required to be circumcised. He's writing to them with history, with the points, the theological implications. He says there are some false teachers who want us to forego the freedoms that we have in Christ. And they want to bring us back into slavery where our salvation is Jesus plus something else. But that comes from the false brothers. That does not come from the Jerusalem apostles. And that does not come from me because there is only one gospel. That's Paul's point. Now, Christ City, here's where you are allowed to look at this text and go, yeah, so what? You ever do that when you're reading the Bible? This is talking a lot about Jewish stuff and circumcision. So what? There's an entirely fair question. Who cares? This is all good, Brett. Who cares? I don't know if you know this morning, I ran out of toothpaste and I uh, hit a red light on the way here and it made me really angry. So I just went through it and then I got a ticket. And so who cares about this thing that happened 2,000 years ago in a bunch of churches that I don't even understand where they are on the map because I didn't do that well in geography and... Who cares? Okay, so what? Like, when's the last time you heard this verse read at a wedding? But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Okay, you might be thinking, is this not just another battle fought by generations past that we are here digging up from the graveyard of ideas and controversies that we buried a really long time ago? The answer is no. See, on issues of first importance, we need to know the truth. We need to define the truth, and we need to defend the truth. The reason we need to do that is so that those who follow after us do not walk away from their freedoms that have been given to them in Christ and walk back into bondage and slavery of distorted gospels. This matters. Some controversies are not worth wading into, and I get that. But others require our courage and our conviction in this united apostolic gospel. Second half of verse 5 says, So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is what Paul's on about. It's what he was doing. Christ said, Truth matters. The truth of the gospel was preserved for you. Not just the churches of Galatia. Your freedom in Christ came through a lot of disputes over the course of history. No cultural identity has been allowed to imprison or distort the gospel. It can't be. There have been seasons in the church where being Christian meant living a certain way and doing certain things. There have been times where we have taken the gospel over the course of Christian history and we have 
swallowed it up into our culture, and then we have repackaged that as though it itself was the gospel. There have been seasons where that has happened. We can't let that happen. The gospel is transcultural. It is not located within one particular culture. The truth of the gospel has been preserved for you here today so that you might know the radical nature of the love of God in Christ to you. And that's why Paul is writing a letter that seems like he's so fired up he can't quite get a whole sentence out. Now, just because there's nobody running around here trying to convince the men of Christ City to get circumcised does not mean that this isn't an issue in 2018 Vancouver. Okay, we're not divided over Jews and Gentiles. We're not divided over circumcision and uncircumcision. Unless there's something I'm missing within the congregation. I don't know. I, I believe that we are not divided over circumcision around here. Some of you are very uncomfortable. Is it the word circumcision or is it the question of whether we are divided over it or not? We are not divided over circumcision in this. Okay. This is not the argument that we're having. Paul was not going to allow the gospel to be a prisoner of Jewish culture. That might not be our issue. But you have to ask the question, what are the cultural identities that we do battle with today? What are they? What are the cultural identities that we actually battle with today? Now, some have called the generation that we're a part of right now and the culture we're living in right now in North America, they've called it a post-truth age. We live in a post-truth culture. In a post-truth culture, objective facts are less influential in shaping the beliefs and the opinions of people than an appeal to their emotion and their experience. Um, this is how, I don't know if you've seen any of this, you probably have, but this is how there's, there are like a large group of people who have now kind of reverted back to the idea that the earth is flat. We're like, I don't mean to offend you if you think the earth is flat. That's stupid. <laughs> Like we got, we got, you can see the curvature of the earth if you have, there's, if you've ever been in a plane, right? Like you can fly all the way around. I don't know, I don't know if you know that. Well, how do people actually come to believe something like that? It's because we've rejected objective facts in, really in essence, trying to live out of our experiences. And you go, well, I don't know, I've been walking for a long time and I've never walked around anything. Okay, I'm just. If you, have you never Googled that? That's fantastic. It is a fantastic ride. In a post truth culture, if we're not serious about preserving truth, Scripture then becomes less influential in shaping our beliefs and our practices as a church, and it becomes less influential than appeals to emotion and individual belief and experience. This is what happens if you reject truth. I sat down with friends of mine, and we were discussing a very significant issue in our culture today, where we have a very strong disagreement. And I opened my Bible and said, show me where you see that. The answer is, well, we don't. And then I say, how do you get so confident holding your position? Well, I just feel like it's more fair. Okay. You cannot jettison 
the truth of God's word in favor of how you feel today. You can't. But you and I all have these conversations with people, and some of them are followers of Jesus. We have rid ourselves of the truth, and we have drawn back in the subjectivity of our own feelings about how things should be. This is why we live in a world where there is my truth and your truth instead of the truth. We need to be careful that we are not shaped culturally by that understanding of what truth is. Post-truth individualism is what you get when you elevate the subjective opinions of the individual over the objective truth of God's word. This is what happens when you reject the authority of the scriptures in favor of the authority of the individual. So I was listening to a podcast this week, and they were interviewing Dallas Green from City and Color. It's a, a band I've listened to for a long time. They're interviewing Dallas Green, and they're talking to him about songwriters and the meaning of lyrics. And he says, oh, that's the beautiful thing about art. Like, I write a song about my mom, but somebody, nobody knows it's about my mom, and then somebody else listens to it, and it has a particular meaning for them. And that's amazing if you're an artist. That's really great if you're a songwriter. That's bad if you're reading the Bible. Okay, the intent of this was not that we would all look at it and take whatever we felt like. Great for listening to art. It's great for viewing art. You stand in front of, you go to the gallery and you stand in front of a painting, right? The uncultured like me look at it and go, that that looks like a painting. Somebody else is weeping. That's wonderful. That is beautiful. That's just not how we approach scripture. See, we aren't tempted to keep Jewish cultural practices today, but we are tempted to reject our new identities in Christ in favor of radical individualism and self-definition. We are tempted to do that. And when we shrink the gospel into I think and I feel rather than God spoke and it is written, what happens is, is we actually are drifting away from our freedom in Christ and we are living into the false gospel of slavery. And I know nobody thinks about it like that. Like you don't talk to somebody who says, well, I think and I feel, and they think that what they're doing is actually wrapping themselves up as slaves in bondage. They don't think they're walking back into bondage. They think that is true freedom, but we have to be elevating the truth of God's word to the point where we recognize what he says is free is actually free. What he says is bondage is truly bondage. Paul didn't make his gospel up. He received it as a revelation from Jesus. The Jerusalem apostles did not make their gospel up. They received it from Jesus. So when we take the gospel we've received and we reduce it down into a personalized me and Jesus gospel, what happens is we shatter the foundation and the unity of the church. The gospel is the truth, not your truth. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's writing to the Ephesians, and he's in jail when he's writing this. And he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he says in verse 4, there is one body, 
There is one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, just one. See, Paul didn't show up with his own message and say, Hi, my name is Paul. I would like to throw a party. I don't know if you know who Oprah Winfrey is. I'm kind of like her. So here's a gospel, and you get a gospel, and you get a gospel, and you get a gospel, and oh, girl, you get a gospel. That is not Paul's message. Paul comes from the place of saying there is one gospel, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is in all and through all. There are not a whole bunch of gospels. That has never happened here before. Paul gives them the one truth that he received. Paul's not the author of his gospel. He received it from Jesus. Jesus is the author of the gospel. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. So when you mess with the gospel, you mess with Jesus. That's why Paul's so upset. There's only one gospel that unites us because there's only one God who saves And in a post-truth world, it's important to remember that that one God revealed himself to us in Christ and invited all people. And we stand or we fall based on the way that we receive that one gospel, the way we preserve that one gospel, and the way we pass along that one gospel. It's not some news, it's the news. And he keeps going, verses 7 to 9, he says, On the contrary... As I went to Jerusalem, I took Barnabas, I took Titus. They added nothing to me, he said in verse 6. He says then, verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, all that that means, the uncircumcised Gentiles, the circumcised Jews. If you want me to keep saying the word circumcision, I'm happy to do it. We're going to keep going through the text. When they saw that I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through me to mind of the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul says they did not add anything to what I had been preaching. For 14 years I've been preaching this. They added nothing to it. They recognized that in the wisdom of God, he had sent me, Paul, to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews with the same gospel. And he says not only did they welcome me, but they accepted me. They accepted our gospel message. And it says that they gave the right hand of fellowship, that we shook on that, that we made an agreement on that, that I would continue the work that God had called me to, Paul says, to the Gentile world, and that God would bless and strengthen that work, and that they were encouraging me in that work. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they welcomed me in and saw me as a partner in the work of Jesus. See, the diversity of the mission of God, the diversity of the mission of the gospel, only has power when there's unity of message. And so you might feel called to go and preach the gospel in some other part of the world. And the way that you're going to deliver the message is going to be different than the way that we do it in Vancouver. 
It should be culturally contextualized and understandable to the people who live there. But it's not a different gospel. The unity of the gospel is where we get the power to have diversity in the mission. The diversity of the mission only has power when there's unity of the message. John Stott said, if there is only one gospel in the New Testament, there is only one gospel for the church. The gospel has not changed with the changing centuries. Whether it is preached to young or old, to east or west, to Jews or Gentiles, to cultured or uncultured, to scientists or non-scientists, although its presentation may vary, its substance is the same. Paul and Peter had a different commission, but they had a common message. You can't mess with the gospel, Christ City. The radically inclusive gospel that welcomes all people from all places is also the radically exclusive gospel where Jesus alone is the only point of entry into the kingdom. And because there is one united gospel, we are free to have one united mission. And that's why we can partner with people all over the world. And Lord willing, in the years to come, we do more and more of that. Because though the gospel be delivered in a different manner, they can't deliver a different gospel. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning?